Somebody could get First uh, Timothy three fourteen and fifteen for us. First Timothy three fourteen and fifteen. Sam and look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7. Uh, Dave, I want to just read both of those scriptures before we wade into the last part of this study. We've been uh, looking at the community of believers. The community of believers is, has its own identity in the earth. It's a counterculture. And uh, it's God's plan for redemption. It's God's tool of redemption. It's the body of Christ. And so we've been looking at its uh, impact on our lives, our involvement, uh, the structure, the, uh, the design. We know that this isn't man's institution, that God created this, planned it, and has left us uh, fairly, fairly clear instructions in the Word of God as to how we are to function or behave ourselves uh, in this context of the church. And so our uh, basic springboard text has been 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. If you go ahead and read that. Paul says, I'm writing to you, if I'm delayed, you need to know how you ought to conduct yourselves, how you ought to behave yourselves uh, in the church of God. And so uh, we've looked at a a number of issues, and last week we started the issue of relationships. At the very core of the church, obviously, is the issue of relationships. The church is not a building, it's people. And uh, all of the dynamics that we've looked at up to relationships have a relational aspect to them. And very, very clearly, uh, God has a very uh, deep concern and a vested interest in our relationships one with another in the church of Jesus Christ. And so last week we spent the entire study, although I didn't plan to do that, that's just the way it goes, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, and I would just like to read those verses again. We're not going to belabor the issue, but uh, I just want to uh, refresh your thinking uh, because the central issue in relationship in the church is love. That's the bottom line. But love is not an emotional uh, issue. It's a, an issue of commitment. Let's have those verses very quickly. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove, remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when you look at those verses, you can see very clearly, first of all, that love is the essential Christian characteristic, that when everything else is said and done, if if love is not at the root of everything that we're doing, then it's pointless, and we cannot even claim to be uh, Christian if we are not uh, dealing with this issue of love. You can also see from those verses very clearly that every description of love is an action word. 
or an action phrase. It has absolutely nothing to do with an emotional feeling. And when you look through those challenging uh, statements by Paul as to the nature of love, you begin to think about it. Many of the things that he calls us to, they don't feel good at all. They don't feel emotionally gushy. They don't make you feel warm and fuzzy. They, they are grit your teeth and uh, work this out kind of dynamics. And they're all relational. And so this has nothing to do with a mental mindset of just thinking pleasant thoughts about each other, but it has to do with the way that we relate to each other and the way that we treat each other. And so uh, at the very root of love is the issue of self-sacrifice and placing other people above yourself, being willing to do anything that you have to do to get somebody else into the kingdom of God. That's what love is. Is I'll do whatever I have to do. I don't want to make anybody stumble. I want to do everything that I can to get somebody else into a right relationship uh, and a right walk with God and facilitate their walk with God. I want to look at just a few more scriptures that give us a few other angles on this issue of love. Let's have Romans 12.10. Romans 12.10, Woody. Romans 13.8-10, Casey. Galatians 5.13, Joel. Ephesians 4.2, Mike. And uh, we'll hold there for a moment. And then there are some other relational issues I want to take a look at. But uh, I just want to, uh, uh, again, look at some other angles of the issue of love as it's described in the Scriptures as it relates to our relationships, one with another. Romans 12.10. Be kindly affected uh, one towards another. That word literally means cherishing one's kindred. To be kindly affected means to cherish one's kindred. Or in other words, uh, to gain the perception of these people. All these people that God has placed you in the midst of are your family. They're your kindred. And that you are to cherish them. And then he says to honor. That word is the word to me. It means to value Literally, money paid uh, or concrete and collectively valuables. So, in other words, this has to do with our little treasures. This is the word that would be used for things that I've accumulated, purchased with my hard-earned money, and, and I consider them valuable. These aren't disposables. These are my valuables. These are the things I put in a safe deposit box. These are the things I keep tucked under my mattress or uh, carefully, you know, if, if the house started to burn down, these would be the first things I grab. And so these are valuables. And so what Paul says uh, is that the, the nature of love is that looking at one another, we value each other. That, that you're very important to me. And if something were to happen to you, it would affect my life. I remember a man standing once and preaching and saying, you know, there's only two people in the world that it would make any difference. Uh, it would even make a ripple in my day if they died. This was a pastor who said that. And I thought, good heavens, you don't even understand Christianity. The truth of the matter is, every person in this building and every person that God brings into association with us should be incredibly valuable to us. And it should trouble you when they go missing. It should trouble you if you come home and your watch and your wallet's gone, right? I mean, you wouldn't just go, oh, well, you know, they'll show up. You'd call the police, you'd send out the St. Bernard's, you'd do everything you could to find those valuables. And this is what Paul is getting at. He says, this is the nature of our relationship. These aren't things that you can uh, treat as disposables. These are valuables in your life. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Okay, Paul says that our major debt, we're back to the centrality of love again. And he says, this is what you owe each other. This is the debt you owe each other. He says, uh, love is summed up, or all the commandments are summed up in this one statement. You will love your neighbor. All of the commandments, thou shalt 
not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. All of those are geared around the issue of not doing harm to someone. To avoid injury to someone else. That's what he says. He says, love does no harm. So what you have to do in the issues of your life and the way you conduct yourself in relationship to the church is weigh the impact of your actions on others. Is this going to hurt somebody? If you'll think back of many of Paul's issues that he addresses to the Corinthians, he says, this may be fine and legal for you, but it's causing someone else to stumble. It's creating a problem for someone else. You have every right to this. Paul writes of himself. He says, don't I have the right to a wife? But I've got issues here. I've got a testimony, things that I'm dealing with, uh, and so I'm willing to sacrifice what is rightfully mine in order to avoid stumbling or hurting someone else. So you have to weigh your words, you have to weigh your conduct, you have to ask yourself, uh, what impact will this make on someone else's life? So you're casually chatting on the phone with somebody, and you drag out a nice juicy little story that you heard about somebody. How many of you know that's real second nature? Amen! And you got to ask yourself, what kind of impact is that going to make on this person's life? What happens when those words get back to that person? What, ha- what have I done to the relationship between that person and this other person? By the words that I spoke. Have I done harm? Have I done harm? Am I doing harm by the actions that I'm taking? This is what Paul says. Uh, the sum of love is, according to the commandments, is that it does no harm. Okay? See, many times I think we harm each other too readily. We're too willing to, uh, to hurt one another. Galatians 5, 13. Okay, so this is the exact same thought bleeding in. He says, you've been called to liberty, but don't use it as an occasion to the flesh but through love serve one another. That word literally means to be a slave to one another. I remember uh, when I was a kid growing up, we used to have days, my brothers and I, where we, you know, you're my slave today. How many of you ever do that when you were a kid? You're my slave. Usually I was the slave because both my brothers were older than me. You're my slave today. And basically that meant anything they wanted, I had to do or I'd get thumped. It really didn't matter what I wanted. It mattered what they wanted. And so it is. This is, this is what Paul's saying. He said, really, you should, you should deal with each other as if you were their slave. Boy, how about that for humiliating? How about that for a difficult challenge in our relationships? But, but it's talking about putting someone else's interests way above your own and measuring everything that you do by relationship, not by self-interest, not by what I want, even if it's legal for me, even if it's you know completely appropriate for me. Many, many times, people defend their actions on the basis of what's legal. It's, you know, there's nothing wrong with me doing this. There's nothing wrong with me doing that. I remember when I was a new convert, there was a, uh, a period uh, as a new convert where I felt perfectly justified in knocking down a beer every now and then. Come home after a hard day of work, I didn't. I didn't, my convictions, you know, at that point were such that uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I'd go to hell for that or God was offended by that. And so I'd have just one beer, I wasn't getting drunk, I'd just have a beer. But uh, there was a young man in that church who came over and I just offered him a beer. And, uh, you know, I was a new convert. I'm, I'm actually being a Christian. Here, have, have one of my beers. And uh, he, he, he refused, he didn't jump on me, he didn't say a word. She said, no thanks. I got him an orange juice or something. The day went on. So the next day, word got back to me that the guy I had offered a beer to was a, a, an ex-alcoholic that God had touched and delivered. And God smote my heart with a sledgehammer. And, you know, I'm a brand new convert, but, but God brings me right to Corinthians and says... Uh, you, you go ahead and take your liberty, but understand there's repercussions to your liberty. And I, I didn't touch a beer again, ever again. I was it. said, fine. I don't need to drink a beer. I'll take a Diet Coke. Thank you very much. It's like, fine. What do you need a beer for? 
Well, you know, I can drink wine. Yeah, but, you know, in a nation of alcoholics, I don't think drinking wine is a good testimony. You may have a liberty. You can argue your liberty with me all day long. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think that was ever the issue. I have every right to go to the movies. Fine. But you got to understand that every step you take has a ripple effect. So who are you living for? Your rights or someone else's salvation? I get tired of listening to people whine about standards when the bottom line on standards comes down to testimony. That's what it's about. It's about testimony. I can do this. I know, you know, we weren't doing anything. Me and Charlie up on the mountain at 12 midnight in the back of the car, we weren't doing anything. We were studying the Bible. Well, you and Charlie might have been studying the Bible. But I doubt it. Well, you're just a suspicious old pervert. No. I just know human nature, number one. Number two, I don't really care if that's all you were doing. I don't really care. Because what it appears to be is something very negative. So you aren't thinking about others when you are demanding your rights and exercising your liberties. You are thinking about yourself. And as you read through the New Testament, the issue again and again and again is it's not about you. You didn't get saved so you could actualize yourself and you could uh, you know, become something. You got saved for other people. That's how you live now. Because your example is Jesus Christ. And He did everything for the salvation of others. So we can argue doctrine all day long, but the bottom line really comes down to the issue of how it affects others. And Paul, he goes to great length to talk about the issue of meat offered to idols, for example. And he says, you know, I can eat meat offered to idols because idols are nothing. just stone. But somebody else puts great significance on that idol. And so doctrinally, I may have that liberty, but the effect that it has on others is going to dictate the way I behave myself. Ephesians 4.2 Forbearing one another in love. That means bearing, that means shouldering, that means carrying, bearing a burden. And he says we do this in love. This is the nature of love. Okay. Any question on the whole issue of love? Thoughts, input, rebuttals, rebukes. Okay. All right, so I want to look at some other dynamics in relationship. What, was there a hand? Did I ignore somebody? Pete, I love you. You can go ahead. Absolutely. So uh, this is actually the nature of the church. This is why God puts us in the church. Everything we've been talking about is the church is a counterculture. It's like going to a foreign country. It's just like the church is as foreign as it comes. And you're plunked down in the middle of this after living in the world, and here you are in a completely different culture. Uh, how do you live that? How, do you, how does this work? I remember when I first got saved, I was overwhelmed. I, I thought I had to juggle all this holiness, you know, all these issues, you know. It was, it was really a torment. 
And it was through the example, through rubbing shoulders, through relationships, uh, through the demonstration of Christianity in other people's lives that I began to learn. And that's exactly how you learn a language. You, the best way to do it is immerse yourself in a culture. And if you want to learn Spanish, go live in Mexico for a year. You'll be talking Spanish or some derivative thereof. <laughs> Mike. What I find interesting about that is he was concerned about such a minute detail. Coke or a beer. I mean, Coke or milk. You know? I don't even know if I'd have picked up on that. But here he is, just worried about just, just, just the little thing. You say, well, you can get into legalism that way. You can. You can. Uh, it, a lot of it depends on your motivation, why you're doing what you're doing, and also your attitude towards others in the process. Okay, so if the guy next to you ordered a Coke, you don't sit there and go, hey, you lousy testimony. Because then you're moving into a realm of legalism. Nonetheless, the issue was he was so concerned about his testimony that he paid attention to the slightest detail. I believe that that's commendable. I believe that's what Jesus is looking for in us, is to be concerned about the details. Because as Peter said, a lot of the little things are the things that people pick up on. So details are important, Casey. Well, everything that we've looked at regarding love has to do with the self-sacrifice to, to put somebody else where they need to be, right? So, obviously, number one, uh, love has nothing to do with emotion. Love has nothing to do with a specific tenor. It has to do with uh, what I'm trying to accomplish here. So, for example, when dealing with a sinner, okay, what does a sinner need? A sinner needs to be made aware that, A, he's a sinner, B, he's going to hell if he doesn't get saved. C, Jesus died for his salvation. He can be a brand new creature. Well, uh, C is real easy to speak in love. But A and B, how do you you tell somebody they're going to hell nicely? How do you tell somebody they're a sinner nicely? And unfortunately, what the spin that speak the truth in love has taken is, well, you can't say those nicely, so we'll just... we'll, We'll just... Pretty quick, huh? Yeah, you got to get up pretty early in the morning. We'll, we'll just speak the truth in, in love. We'll just tell them about the grace of God. Okay? Okay. Jeff. <laughs> Yeah. And, it, and just in all fairness, it does take a little while 
and you're a harder nut to crack. Yeah, very good. And and so this is a process. And when I say you can get saved for yourself, get saved for others, I'm I'm talking about the your life calling, your life work. Obviously, we get saved for ourselves. We get saved out of self-interest. All of us got saved out of self-interest. Most of us got saved because we didn't want to go to hell, <laughs> which is about as self-interested as you can get. But uh, you know, totally legitimate. Nonetheless, our motives, our calling, the way we live as Christians is for others. And yes, for many of us, it is a challenge, which is exactly why we're, do, we're studying it right now. It's exactly why we're looking at it, because this doesn't come natural. How many of you know it's natural to be selfish? You don't have to teach a kid to be selfish. It's natural to be crude and rude and barbaric. That's natural. Okay? We're talking about refined behavior. And to refine something means to put it through a process so that it becomes something else. Bear. It was good last week when you uh, went through 1 Corinthians 13 because love is a concept that's been sucked dry. Yes. But to put a face on it with, with we went you know, verse by verse, uh, not self-seeking, not rude, you know, polite. And it got me thinking all week and really I, what I realized was that Christian idea of love is really the basis of, of, of all civilization. All the, uh, the unwritten and written rules that we live by, you know, opening the door for women and, and uh, letting somebody pass and, and, uh, and all the things that make uh, work and marriage and cute school livable, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember one of my sons said once that, you know, uh, after the rapture, you know, the, we were driving someone had just cut us off or had done something. And he said, you know, after the rapture, the three of you would be rough driving the highway. <laughs> <laughs> my first thought was, well, maybe it'd be safer. <laughs> because, uh, because a lot of times I let my, I let, I let my, my fallen nature rule, rule the wheel. And I think other Christians mm-hmm. really... I don't go too far there. We <laughs> okay? And so... Uh, so the issue here has to do with uh, the basis of relationship. The basis of relationship. Bear's observation is, uh, the truth of the matter is, you take all the things we've looked at, that they are what makes society run smoothly. And so as you look at society today and its decay, it, there's never been a more loveless generation, which is exactly... What Jesus said, the love of many will wax, wax cold. Paul talked about it in Thessalonians, uh, about being a loveless, godless generation. And that's, that's where we are in the end days, is this basic issue of love is lost to our culture. Okay, I want to look a little further at relational issues that are important. They're called out in Scripture, and uh, relationship is the foundation of everything we're doing. So we want to look at this. Uh, James 2, 1 to 4. Somebody get me that. Uh, Sam, Pete, get me 1 Timothy 5, 21. Somebody get me Romans 12, 16. Over here, Joel. Uh, somebody get me um, Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Mike, Mark 11, 25. Don, uh, Colossians 3, 13. Rod, uh, James 4, 11. Mark, James 5, 9. Dave, I can see your hand itching. 2 Thessalonians 3.11, Casey, uh, 1 Timothy 5.13, Mike, and James 3.10. Somebody give me, that, give me uh, James 3.10, Chris. All right. And so the first one we want to look at is the issue of impartiality. James 
Okay, so James gives us a picture or an illustration of partiality. He says, don't hold the love of Christ with partiality. And uh, he says, uh, if a man comes in and he's, uh, he's got all kinds of wealth, and then a poor man comes in and you neglect the poor man, pay attention to the rich man, don't you show partiality and become a judge. And so really what we're dealing with is the issue of uh, favoring or being biased towards someone, right, at the expense of someone else and rooted in uh, what you're getting out of it. See, why would we favor a rich man over a poor man? Because we'd rather ride in a Maserati than a Volkswagen. Okay, because a rich man can do something for us, a poor man can't. Right? And so at the root of partiality, again, is self-interest. But you can do this on a lot of different levels. Partiality plays out in a lot of different ways. First Timothy 5.21 Do these things without prejudice, doing nothing with, uh, or doing all things without or with impartiality. And Romans 12, 16. Associate with the humble. Don't set your mind on high things. Associate with the humble. So uh, Timothy talks about prejudice. Uh, uh, we're talking about intellectual partiality. We're talking about a lot of different uh, ways that we can bias ourselves and uh, begin to treat different people differently. It, this can play out in, in clickishness. Clickishness is just partiality. It's me. I'm in this group. You're not cool enough to be in this group. God deliver us from high school cliques. You know, come on, folks, we're out of high school. Right? And some of you aren't out of high school, but actually they're all up there. And so, well, some of you really aren't mentally out of high school yet either. And so, you'll get there sooner or later. But really, you gotta outgrow this whole clique thing. And you cannot approach people and estimate their value based on, you know, what you deem valuable. We talked about the value of others earlier. Okay, and obviously we're all drawn to certain kinds of people as friends, but even our friends should not have an advantage over someone who we're not close with when it comes to need, when it comes to attitude, when it comes to the way we treat each other. You know, uh, snobbishness and snubbery have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Period. And when people come into the church, they should feel that you care about them. Not that they have to work their way into the church. You know what I mean? It's a terrible thing to have to work your way into final acceptance. People should be accepted on the same basis that God accepts them, which is mighty liberal. Okay? So partiality is an issue in relationship. Forgiveness is an issue in relationship. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Okay. <laughs> Mike's having a problem with his math this morning. <laughs> I, and if there's a way we can reduce this, we need to. <laughs> okay, so notice Peter says, uh, how many times can my brother offend me? He doesn't say how many times can the heathen offend me. He says, how many times can my brother offend me? All right, and so he's talking relational dynamics. So in relationships, you're going to get your toes stepped on. You're going to get poked in the ribs. Your nose is going to get bloody. Things happen. That's what happens in relationships. Any family. My brothers and I used to fight like demons. Okay, and so do some of you. And the bottom line is in, in relational dynamics, there is no way you're going to get through it unscathed. There is no way that offenses will not come. They will come. And so Peter, looking down the road, looking at his, 12, his 11 brethren, goes, yeah, how, many, how many times do these guys get away with this? You know, They've given me a lot of flack lately. How many times do I have to forgive them? 
And he's feeling pretty good. Seven times, pretty liberal. Jesus says, try 490 in a day. 490 times a day. Your brother's got to be pretty callous to offend you 490 times a day. And yet that's the standard that God calls us to. And obviously, he's, the, the numbers are am, ambiguous. <laughs> so if, there, if you live with somebody or you work with somebody who's capable of offending you 490 times a day, you're going to have to go 491. Or 492. Okay? So forgiveness is critical. Mark 11.25. God says you put relationships over religious form. He says if you're standing there praying, going through your spiritual motions, and you remember there's somebody that you got a problem with, you better forgive them so that God will forgive you and the relationship there is untainted uh, or unsullied. Okay, Colossians 3.13. I like this. Paul writes and he says, uh, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel, just learn to forgive. You, you know, you don't always have to have pastor as a referee. You know, forgive. But pastor, you don't understand. He did this, he did that, he did that. Forgive. But, but, you Shut up and forgive. Right? Oh, but you know, they're so undeserving. They don't deserve forgiveness. And God says, okay, well, I'll, I'll work with the same standards you work with. Ooh. That's a frightening thought. Okay. Relationally, forgiveness, impartiality. We are to watch what we say about each other. James 4.11 Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Okay, so he says, don't speak evil about one another. And then he gets into this whole uh, thing about judging the law and judging each other. And the, the whole thing is a... Uh, a complete step away from Christianity. Because how many of you know that we're not under the law? We don't live the law. We live uh, the law of love. It's a completely different law. And so he says, uh, he says this isn't even the issue. Uh, the issue is you've got to watch what you say about one another. James 5, 9. Do not grumble one against another, brother, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is a none too veiled threat. Right? He says, do not grumble against each other. I like that. Do not grumble against each other. How many, how many of you ever grumble? There's two or three honest people here. And that's my next point is honesty, so you'll get convicted in just a moment. And so, uh, so he says, do not grumble against each other, lest you be condemned. The judge is at the door. Well, who's the judge? You're going to answer for it. You're going to answer for every idle word. Isn't that what Jesus said? Second Thessalonians 3.11 we, we hear there are some amongst you that don't work. <laughs> That's the side point. And then he says, and our busy bodies. How many of you know a busy body? I don't want to see any hands. <laughs> he says, he, he's, he's obviously has a very negative attitude here towards busy bodies. And we see this again, First uh, Timothy 5.13. Saying things which they ought not. Now, you know, the interesting thing in both of those verses is the busybodiness, if you will, grows out of idleness. They don't work. They're idle. They wander from house to house. <clears throat> Any church that loses its vision for the harvest, 
becomes the nastiest little pack of rats you'll ever find. They are no longer occupied with the things of God. So what's going to occupy them? Each other. And you become busybodies and gossips. And this will invariably be the end result. If you're not busy about your father's business, then you'll be busy about everybody else's business. That's, that is always the case. Okay? And so we're going to look in closing just a moment at the mission of the church. But if you don't keep the mission of the church first and foremost in your mind, you become a busybody. James 3.10. He says, your mouth was made for blessing. It wasn't made for cursing. It wasn't made for evil. It wasn't made for wickedness. It was made for blessing God. Okay, I need a couple more verses. Colossians 3, 9. Uh, Mike and Ephesians 4, 25. Pete and uh, Pete to Baker. Get me James 5, 16. And then uh, I want Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Mike, Don, get me Mark 16, 15 to 20. Somebody get me Luke 24, 46 to 49. Sam and Acts uh, 28.31. Uh, twister. Okay. <clears throat> Impartiality, forgiveness, watch what you say, honesty. Colossians 3.9. Right Why not one to another? Ephesians 4.25. And James 5.16. Confess your trespasses one to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay, the two di- speak directly, the first two speak directly to dishonesty, to lying to each other. And uh, obviously, that's something we're not supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be honest with each other. Uh, if you tell your brother you're going to do something, you need to do it. You need to be a man of your word. The relationships work very well that way. You violate trust once, and it takes an incredible amount of time to repair that. Okay? And so you don't want to do that. You don't want to violate trust. But I believe the issue of honesty goes deeper than just uh, direct dishonesty. I believe it also touches the issue of pretense. Pretense is pretending to be something that you're not, which is epidemic in Christian circles. Because we don't want anybody to know how bad we really are. So we all pretend that we're almost as holy as Moses. Where, whence the term holy Moses. And so, we all pretend that we're holy like that. Okay? And so, it's interesting that James says, confess your faults one to another. This is talking about pretty lethal stuff, isn't it? Man, the last thing you want to do is, don't you hate it when you're down praying and you feel the hand on your shoulder? Well, sometimes it's good, but sometimes like, now they're going to ask me what I'm doing down here. And I'm going to have to tell them. So you make something up. <laughs> so you're lying. <laughs> but above all, you're not being open. And see, what happens, I think, sometimes in Christian circles is we all walk around with our halos on so tight that when someone is struggling, they look around and they go, these people are so holy and I'm so unholy. Have you ever felt that way? These people, man, they all have their act together, and I am so unclean. And it can be so discouraging to look at a pretense or a pretentious people who pretend to have their act all together, but they don't. And so sometimes in the course of relationships, and I don't advise you to do this with everybody. There's some people you should never confess anything to because it'll be on the bulletin board next week. But in trusting relationships, you know, I remember a time praying with a brother once who confessed something to me that I know was incredibly difficult for him to confess. Incredibly difficult. I cringed for him as he spoke. But at the same time, when he spoke it, I thought, man, there is hope for me. If this guy is struggling with this, then there's hope for me. Because this is a guy who I respected I mean, he's like the fourth person of the Trinity. You know, he's like up there. This guy was this guy was walk on water holy, and for him to actually have this struggle and then to be open enough to confess it to me and pray with me about it and uh, contend for victory with me, it changed my life. 
Gave me a whole new perspective on the way God works in our lives. And so I think we have to be very, very careful not to pretend to a holiness that we don't don't possess. And I think that uh, that is one of the issues that's addressed here in honesty in our relationships. Okay, so those are relational issues. And this is my last uh, shot. And so I want to close with the mission of the church. And obviously, what's the mission of the church? Where did the momentum go? Go ye, win the lost. Okay, the work of redemption in the earth. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to twenty. Go make disciples to the ends of the earth. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Mark 16, 15 to 20. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick. Go and preach the word, make disciples. Exact same commission. Then it's, it plays out. He talks about uh, signs and wonders, miracle ministry. And he says, uh, then Jesus left and they did what they were told to do. This is what the church went and did. They preached. Signs followed, God confirmed the word, uh, and uh, this is the church in action. Luke 24, 46 to 49. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with Preach to all nations. You are witnesses of this thing. All of these Gospels, the, the final words of Jesus, the commission to the church is go, preach the Gospel, make disciples. Everything that we do as a church has to fall into that. Somehow. In other words, everything that we do as a church has to be measured by its impact on preaching the Gospel and making disciples. Anything else is a diversion, a distraction. Anything else may have value, may be good, may be nice, may be pleasant, may be sociable. But the bottom line on anything we do is, well, what did Jesus tell us to do? He told us to go preach and make disciples. Preach and make disciples. And if you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, the first century church in its fledgling state, in its most innocent form, before it ever got messed up with men, when it was still functioning fully under the power of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts is the, is the description of that church, and that church was interested in one thing, spreading the gospel and making disciples. That was the whole thrust of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, uh, the, uh, uh, Jesus... Uh, speaks to them, says, tarry in Jerusalem, they wait, the Holy Spirit falls, and the first thing Peter does is stands up and preaches. Acts 28.31, the last verse of the book is... Boldly, uh, completely undeterred by any of the things that came against him, Paul preaches, thus ends the book of Acts. Start to end, it's about preaching the gospel to the lost. Start to finish, it's about going into the nations. He goes all over, uh, basically, the Mediterranean world, the world that he can reach, and touches it with the gospel. That's the story of Paul, Peter, James, the disciples as they're spread from Jerusalem by persecution. They go out preaching. They go out seeing people saved. That's what the whole church was about. It wasn't about anything else. It wasn't about you know big presentations, big buildings, big anything. It was about getting people saved and making disciples out of them. Mike.
You're formalizing preaching. You're putting preaching here. Preaching is what you do on the streets. Preaching is when you buttonhole somebody, tell them about Jesus. Preaching is witnessing to your workmate. That falls under the category of preaching because preaching is the declaration of the Word of God to a person who needs to hear it. That's what preaching is. We can preach from a pulpit or you can preach one-on-one. And never has the commission of reaching the world been easier than it is today because never has society been more mobile. You go out on the park any day of the summer, you'll run into Germans, you'll run into Filipinos, you'll run into English people, Australians, you'll run into everything. They're out there, man. And our call is to impact them with the gospel. Now, I want to close with just one quote. Take everything I've said, everything we've looked at over all of these studies, the importance of the church, centrality of the church, its impact on your life, its discipline, its accountability, the structures, uh, uh, the relationships, and the, the preaching of the gospel. And listen to this. I, I got this out of this book that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago called Virtual Faith, a description of Gen X's spirituality. This is what he says. Uh, he quotes, If you want to talk about church, I'm not very interested. This is perhaps the single most common sentence that I heard from Xers over the past several years in discussions and interviews. And he talked to thousands of them in the preparation of this book. Most frequently, this statement was followed by something like, I still think people can be spiritual or religious without going to church or synagogue. Some even added the rhetorical question, do you think it really makes a difference to God? This is the common mindset. I don't need church. Okay? If you want to talk to me about church, don't talk to me. Okay? The church has a very negative impact in today's culture and society. How do we get them from that point to the point we've talked about for the last seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks? Because we see getting them in there is what it's all about. You don't have to only win them to Jesus. You have to win them to the church. The mission is to is to save souls, to preach the gospel, and make disciples. Can't do it without the church. Can't be done. So you have to ask yourself, how do I get them from point A to point B? That's all we got time for. It's been fun.